Welcome to Dream Business Radio, the place to create your dream business now. Get ready for some inspiration, some encouragement, some proven business building strategies, and a couple of new ideas that you haven't even thought of. It's time to leave slow and steady as she goes to the other entrepreneurs, because this program is all about speed and fast results. And now, broadcasting from his floating home somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, the dream business coach himself, Jim Palmer. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Captain Jim Palmer, the dream business coach. I am uh, currently based in northern Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, in case you're curious. We've got about another three weeks here before we head south to Florida. I have a super exciting guest today. This is one of my favorite areas of business. Well, you know, of course, marketing and business building, but I love buying and selling businesses, business valuations. It's a very much needed topic Gosh, that's, I can tell bad grammar coming out of my mouth, but this is something that far too entrepreneurs think about until it's frankly too late. So I'm really excited. My guest is Terry Lammers, and, and uh, he is a, uh, an expert, uh, certified valuation analyst, consultant, coach, and things like that. So let me give you his proper introduction. Um, Terry Lammers is a certified valuation analyst and co-founder, managing member of Innovative business advisor. She was president and co-owner of Tri-County Petroleum for 20 plus years before joining Regions Bank as VP of Commercial Banking. After selling his business in 2010, armed with a vast financial expertise and decades of hands-on business leadership, Terry now works with his team at Innovative Business Advisors to guide current business owners looking to sell their enterprises as well as prospective buyers. Terry has a new book, You Don't Know What You Don't Know, which is an in-depth examination of the process of buying, growing, and eventually selling a business. With Terry's guidance, both current and aspiring business owners are sure to walk away with a wealth of knowledge and advice to lead them down the path to success in every stage. As I like to tell my clients, someday you're going to want to cash out and go sit on the beach, go sit in your boat, go sit in the mountains, or just sit exactly where you are and not worry about anything because your business is an asset. So, Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jim. I am, uh, I'm super excited to talk with you. Um, I, love, I love this topic. I believe it's one where enough uh, business owners, they don't even think about it until they want to sell. And I think there's so much you can do as you're growing your business. And, and also, certainly, e even if you're late to the party, in my opinion, and please feel free to correct the host, in my opinion, you got to be like at least five years out and start, start doing things in a different way before you sell. Would you agree? Oh, I would agree totally. I mean, that would be my favorite client to coach them for five years before they, you know, eventually sold their business. Um, and you're exactly right. People think about it way too late in the game. I'm dealing with one of those right now. It came to me three months ago and said, if I don't sell it in three months, I'm closing the doors. It's like, Ugh, oh, that's, my. that's tough. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons, and again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a CPA. I just have my own, um, my own experience from you know, being in business a long time. But I think people run small businesses a certain way, of course, legally, but to minimize their profits, to minimize their taxes. And then <laughs> when you go to sell it, you want to show a healthy P&L, right? Because, you know, oh it's kind of yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I met with a new client yesterday and not doing the best financially. And for this year, the person is showing a $56,000 profit, which isn't, you know, 
I don't know. It just depends on the size of your business. Right. But she's like, that terrifies me because I'm going to have to pay taxes on that. I'm like, Oh my God, for the love of God, you know, um, we got to, you know, and at the same time she's terrified that she's not going to be having enough money to retire. It's like, well, we've got to balance this out. Yeah. Well, I'd love to pay taxes on $56,000. You know, what a problem to have, but um, you know, so, so many things I want to ask you. Um, you know, I know I was involved with franchising also, and that, that is a, a way um, to grow. And part of this franchise that I helped run, we also acquired ongoing businesses. So do you help people acquire businesses as a growth strategy also? Yes, we can definitely do that. And, you know, it sounds like in your situation, you knew exactly what you was looking for. So that that we can be really good at. The ones that are time killers for us are just individuals. Typically, they're working in a corporate job. They've got money and they want to buy a business. And that, but you know, you're like, well, what kind of business do you want to buy? Well, one that's got recurring income, has a nice growth and spends off lots of cash. Well, <laughs> okay. So does everybody else, right? Yeah, exactly. But if you come to me and say, I want to buy HVAC companies, you know, in this area, in this range, that's something we can easily search and, and, you know, do a buyer's representation on. I'm just curious when, if someone did come to you and said, yeah, I'm I'm an HVAC guy, I'm I'm buying up other, and you don't know that they're necessarily for sale. Do you reach out to existing businesses and just see if there's interest in selling or do you ever do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's how, you know, in the course of owning Tri-County Petroleum, my business, um, I bought, you know, 11 different companies, but I always called it planting the seed. So I'd go talk to a competitor and I usually just started off by introducing myself and, you know, not mentioning anything that I want to buy their company, but people do business with people they know, right? right. So just start off with a handshake and and an introduction and maybe you follow up on it in six months or a year. And you know, the next thing you know, you kind of drop a hint about it. And um, so that's a little bit of a longer term approach, but we've also done buyer searches um, where we're just sending a letter and saying, Hey, we got, you know, somebody interested. Unfortunately, business owners get a lot of those letters. So it is, you know, the follow-up phone call and building that relationship that I think is much more successful. Yeah. I'm just curious about this. I wonder if people are used to getting those letters if they think it's just uh, almost just reaching out just for the sake of reaching out for the someday. You know, it's kind of like always keeping your help wanted ads going just in case you're going to need somebody. Yeah. I mean, I I remember getting them when I had the oil company. So I know they're out there. Um, and, And probably, you know, it's probably a mix of people that are just fishing and people that are serious. So, um, Terry, you wrote the book, You Don't Know What You Don't Know, which I think is, um, I, I think every entrepreneur has a certain skill and talent and they build a business around that and then they hire other people to support the skills and talents they need as the company grows. And I think one of them, which they never accumulate, is the desire or, excuse me, the knowledge to, to sell a business. So, I think, uh, I think it was chapter three in your book is, what's a company worth? I know that's a, a, it's, it's not an exact science, but why don't you take a stab at it? Yeah, it's it's like an art and a science, right? Yeah. I mean there's there's definitely the the K 
cash flow of the company is going to be the main driver of value. You know, how much, how much money is this company making, you know, is, is going to be the main driver of the business, but there's a couple of different avenues. You know, when we do a business valuation for a company, we're, I tell the, the, you know, the business owner, we're doing a financial valuation. We are valuing your current cash flow. With me, you know, at the time when I was buying companies, and especially if a company's in the market area that I'm already in, there could be a very strategic reason for buying that company. And what I teach my buyers is, uh, it's kind of funny, I talk about it in the book that me and my accountant used to butt heads about, you pay for a company for the current cash flow that it's spinning off, not for what the company can make if you was running it. Because in many situations, when I would buy the company, I'm going to wipe out 20 to 30%, if not more, of their operating expenses. So the cash flow that would come from me from that company could be very different than what the cash flow it's current it's it, it's throwing off under the current owner. Does that make sense? Yeah. And isn't that typical of a CPA? And I love CPAs. I've got some in my coaching program, but they look at things by their training, very black and white. What's the current balance sheet? What's this say? And entrepreneurs tend to be more visionary. And you know what's possible. Like if you acquire somebody and it's a competitor, you know you're not going to need all the back office staff that's on their payroll now because you can be absorbed, right? So that's it's kind of a typical answer that you might get from a, a, an accountant. Yeah, you know, and then another thing that I would tell your listeners, especially if they're business owners, I mean, growing by acquisition is just a fantastic way to grow. But I recently had a prospective buyer tell me what, and this was on an HVAC company, he goes, yeah, we don't like to buy companies that are in our current geographical footprint. And I was like, wait a minute, stop, think about this. You know, if, if that guy goes out of business, yeah, you might get, let's just say 10% of his customers. But if you pay him a fair price for his business, and you know, the old 80-20 rule, you know, 80% of his income is probably coming from 20% of his customers. Right. And he goes around and tells those people, hey, look, you know, Jim bought my business. I trust him. Give him a chance. You could keep, in our experience, we'd keep 95% of those customers. So why, you know, why settle for 10% when you can get 95% of the customers? And going back to a strategic acquisition, you know, there was times I didn't even have to add a driver, you know, it's just all that gross profit pretty much went straight to the bottom line. Yeah. What are some of the things um, an entrepreneur needs to have in place uh, before he sells his company? You know, a lot of the things, so the financials and the cash flow of the company is one thing, but the other thing we do on our coaching platform is really talk about non-financial things that you just, I mean, kill the, the sellability of the company. So a lot of times it doesn't matter, you know, hey, the company's financially worth a million dollars, but you know, there's this non-financial thing that maybe lowers the value of the 800. It's the non-financial thing that can make the company completely unsellable. So an example would be, in the value builder system that we use, the Switzerland structure. You know, Switzerland was a very independent country. So is your company independent of any one customer, any one employee, or any one supplier? Um, to give you an example, with, with my company, we had a contract with mobile to repackage their lubricants. That contract wasn't going to go to say you if you was buying my company just because you bought my company. And in fact, the company that bought my company didn't get that contract because mobile didn't like them, you know, so that could be something that could really kill, kill the sale of your company. Another big one, especially with your smaller businesses is what we call the hub and spoke. 
you know, as the owner, are you the hub and your spokes are all your employees, customers, suppliers, are they all coming to you? So if I take you out of that business, it fails. So, you know, in my situation, I had three operations managers and an office manager. I could go on vacation for two weeks and the thing would operate just fine. But if you're that business owner that, you know, you got to be there to open the door and, and there to lock the door um, or nothing takes place, that's a little bit tougher of a situation. Certainly makes your business less valuable. Oh, and then, I mean, and again, just to the point where it could make it completely unsellable. I mean, I, I had a trucking and logistics company that was throwing off about a half a million dollars a year in cash. So, you know, that's a good company and, and, and financially is worth a good chunk of money. But the owner did absolutely everything and it made it a complete, we never did sell it. It made it a completely unsellable company. Oh, my. So, you know, th those are some of the things, you know, companies with recurring revenue are, are e much easier to sell than, and will get a higher multiple than um, transactional companies. So, I know you were VP of uh, bank, commercial banking for, uh, I think it was Regions Bank. What does is, what is it mean by your bank ability? Is that the ability uh, for, the comp for the company to uh, have a loan or just to buy it or? Yeah, I've actually, we actually trademarked that term, bankability. So, you know, what I mean by bankability and what I talk about in the book is how bankable are you as a person? Um, it's funny, I had a conversation today with a, a customer of ours that bought a company um, and he was just t terrible. He didn't have his finances in straight. You know, it was, it was a nightmare to get him through the banking process. But um as a business owner, you need to know how bankable you are. Can I go out and secure a half million dollar loan? If I want to buy a company, can I afford to buy a company that's worth a million dollars? You know, what's my debt service coverage ratio? Um, I would encourage people to meet annually with their banker just to review the banker's thoughts on things and give them a heads up on things you may be buying. Um, I, I did that all the time. And uh, so that's, that's what I mean by bankability. You know, are you a bankable person and can you effectively go to the bank and get a loan to buy something? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about non-competes? I mean, that seems pretty straightforward if someone's buying your business to have, have the former owner sign a non-compete. Is, is that, is that as common as I think it is? Yeah, that's absolutely very common. And I, I certainly have some strong opinions about that. I mean, if I'm going to buy your company for a couple million dollars, you better bet, believe I don't want you to come back into my territory and start another business. Um, and it's crazy. You hear some stories like that. But, and, you know, what I would say mostly about non-competes is, yes, it's very common. You, there, you, from a lawyer's perspective, and I'm not a lawyer, but just being through this process, um, it's got to be reasonable. So if I'm running an oil company and I only cover 30 miles from my home base, you shouldn't sign a non-compete that says I can't have an oil company in the United States. That doesn't make sense. Right. Um, most non-competes are from three to five years. I was willing to sign a seven-year non-compete just because, but then what really regulates a lot of this non-compete stuff is what state are you in? So in the state of Illinois where I live, and I recently had a conversation with somebody in California, those are two very liberal states and they, they 
the courts do not support non-competes very well. Now in Missouri, which is right next border, and we do a lot of business in Missouri, you sign a non-compete, you're going to stick to it because the court's going to hold it up. Because but generally what people, what courts are looking for in a non-compete is, is it reasonable? Did you get paid for it? And the length of time. But I know, um, as you said, some of the um, liberal judges might, I think they come down on the side of, they always come down on the side of the little guy. Like even if you're a small business yep. owner, it's like yeah. you can't stop the man or woman from making a living, even if they agreed to it. Is that, have you seen that? Yes. And that's exactly the way Illinois is. Wow. So, you know, you just, it, it has to be reasonable. I got frustrated. We had a deal a couple of years ago and my broker didn't use the attorney that I told him to. And he went to a litigation firm and got a, a litigation attorney to do an M&A transaction. Oh my God. You know, so what, you know, what do litig litigators like to do? They like to fight, right? So he put an unfair agreement out there and, and part of the purchase agreement was a 10 year non-compete. Well, so then the other attorney representing the seller right out of the gate comes back and says, well, that's not reasonable. So we're going to go for one year. And there was all this fighting back and forth and money being spent to get the three years. And at the end of the day, the seller was 64 years old and he was moving to another state. So who really cared, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about employees and, and things like that. Employees, vendors, um, when do you tell those folks? Employees are always really tricky. Um, and I would say it's kind of a deal where every situation is different. I mean, we've, I've bought companies where maybe we talked to one or two key employees um, before the sale, but nobody else knew until the day of the sale. <laughs> I mm. talking about this. I'm remembering several times where you walk into the boardroom, you know, after the owner told them that morning that he sold the company and then I'm the guy walking in behind that bought it and you know, all eyes on you. Right. Man, you uh, must got some glares, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Who's this guy? So yep. my favorite saying through all of this, whether it was my employees as we was buying another company or the company that we was buying is, Hey, keep an open mind. Just keep an open mind. There's going to be changes, but just keep an open mind. You know, we'll get through this. And for the most part that the would work, you know, I would say the key thing with employees though, if you're a buyer, um, you need to do your due diligence because, um, I had a real touchy situation with a drilling company that we sold and the owners, a husband and wife did a really good job in that, you know, they go on vacation. They had two key employees that could run the business, but they never tied them down. They never put any golden handcuffs on them. So oh. two weeks before the sale of the company, you know, we had to approach these two guys because my buyer, another young guy wasn't going to buy if them two guys didn't stay. And you know, there was a lot of debate and money spent on attorneys on whether we make these guys sign a non-compete or, you know, something like that. There was blue collar workers that had never signed a, an employment agreement or, a, you know, a, a non-compete or anything like that. Ultimately, we chose not to have them sign an agreement because we didn't think that would fly. And there was a little bit of heartburn, but it all worked out. So, you know, look at it from two ways. One, if you're the buyer make sure, you know, if there's some key employees with a company that they're going to stay when you buy it and there's ways to do that. And two, if you're the seller, what's going to make your company more sellable is if you have employees that can run the show while you're not there and you have them tied down a little bit. And if they're not tied down, I guess that's, you certainly have to have those conversations. You almost have to 
you know, broach the subject before the deal's closed to find out yeah. if they're going to stay. Well, and you do. And here's the other thing that I would pay attention to. We got caught with this on the last company that we bought. Everybody was pretty much going to stay. But what we didn't know and we didn't ask, it's a due diligence question, is when was the last time somebody got a raise? And no more than we bought it, we had one employee after another coming to us and saying, hey, you know, I haven't had a raise in five years and they was underpaid. And hey, that puts you in a tight spot. It sure does. I mean, God, what a, what a treacherous time to lose all the key staff. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's, you know, maybe something to talk about real quick is due diligence questions. You know, I was buying oil companies, so I knew exactly what to look for. You know, I understood trucks. I understood the bulk storage facilities. I understood the customers, who they was, you know, what type of business was they in, what size are they, are they paying on time? But we bought a property management company. I didn't know anything about a property management company. <laughs> and we buy it. And all the employees are, I had a partner and he's never bought a company before. So, but he's in that business, but he didn't really understand the right questions to ask. And, you know, right out of the gate, all the employees are underpaid. The phone system is shot. The computers are old. They have a software system, you know, that's relevant to the industry, but nobody was trained on it. So there was just a lot of, again, non-financial things. Maybe you want to call them soft things that, really affected what should have been the value of that company. I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons to hire somebody like you instead of just doing it on your own, because you're, you're probably going to be so, I don't know, emotional is the right word, but you're going to be like, man, I want this. This is going to be great. Yeah, <laughs> and you're not well, thinking of these things. Yeah. And not to give ourselves a blind plug, but, but you're exactly right. And if you got a good broker working with you, I, I always tell people, it's like, I'll save, you know, what you're going to pay me, I'll probably save you in attorney's fees because we will ask all the right questions and, and, you know, help you get through the process in a timely manner because it is, that's why I like the name of the book. You don't know what you don't know. And you get hit, you know, the buyer or the seller gets hit with all these questions and are like, I don't know. Is that, you know, am I supposed to give him a copy of my accounts receivable list? He's going to see all my customers. No, black that out. What they're really looking for is customer concentration and do your customers pay on time. Yeah. Um, There's going to, you know, there's going to be that moment in time where everybody's got to kind of um, show each other everything, so to speak. But um, but there's proper times to do it. You know, is the letter of in, is there a letter of intent? Is the purchase agreement in place? Was there any earnest money put up? You know, um, there's certain ways to go about it. Yeah. Uh, the last chapter in your book, uh, again, <laughs> you don't know what you don't know is titled Don't Be the Dog That Caught the Car. <laughs> what do you mean by that? So know what the heck you're going to do with your life once you sell your company. <laughs> so okay. in, in the book, I talk about things that I felt like I did right and things that I didn't do right and I should have done different. Well, I can tell you one of the things I should have done different is figured out what I was going to do with my life when I sold the company. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. You go from being king of the hill, you know, at a company with over $40 million a year in sales. So he was a pretty good sized company to being just that guy. And, you know, you think it's great. I'm retired. I'm going to hunt. I'm going to fish. I'm going to golf. Well, all your friends are still working. And after about three months of hanging around the house and watching the Today Show in the morning and the price is right at noon and Oprah in the afternoon, my wife's like, um, you're going to get a job. 
<laughs> yeah, go do something. Because <laughs> you're not hanging around here. Apparently, our house is a marital house asset that I'm not allowed to be at during the day. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think I got time for one more question. Um, how do you avoid, if you're the seller, how do you avoid taking like a nasty tax hit? Is there a certain way to structure it? Uh, there's several ways to structure it. And that's all about the planning that, you know, that's another thing that I didn't do right. That I talk about in the book, you, I'll tell you two things, you know, real quick. One, I, my two mantras, I always preach. It's not about sales and net income. It's about gross profit and cash flow. And when it comes to selling your company, it's not about what you sell your company for dollar wise. It's what you get to keep net of taxes. I mean, believe it or not, I've had situations where, because the seller had some debt and the way the the purchase agreement was orig originally drafted after taxes, they was going to have to bring money to the table. Mm. So um, one of the biggest things that the first page, the first, first page of my book is exactly about that. We was, we negotiated the price of the company. You know, we was all kosher on how everything was going to work. And then at the last minute, the, CPAs got into a fight about the allocation of assets. So what does that mean, right? Okay, so if you're buying the company for a million dollars, how are you applying that million dollars to the assets that are being purchased? The buyer is always gonna want as much money on the equipment so he can depreciate it back off. And the seller is gonna want as much of the price as possible to go, go to goodwill because that's at a smaller tax rate. And that oh. can amount to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's a situation that we had. So it's a pretty cool first couple of pages of the book is, is talking about that exact situation. Wow. So the, so the buyer and the seller are, are almost at odds in this area. Oh, absolutely. I mean, wow. yeah, that was one of the first questions I asked when I sold my company you know, um, ask the buyer, it's like, what's the allocation of assets going to be like? And they're like, well, however you want it. Awesome. I'll sell you all the equipment for a dollar and the rest goes to goodwill. Well, there is a middle ground. There's this um, unit of our government called the IRS. Yeah. <laughs> it has to, it has to pass the IRS sniff factor, you know, and make sense. But, but, you know, the difference in the tax regulations can literally amount to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, another thing to think about, you know, like I sold my company to a $6 billion company, you know, it's highly unlikely they're going to default on any kind of owner's note. But mm -hmm. um, you may want to think instead of getting that big check all at one time, getting a series of little checks over time. And, you know, that is, that is a huge, huge thing in selling your company. You got to do some tax planning. Wow. Well, it sounds like you really know your stuff. I've enjoyed our conversation, Terry. How can people connect with you? Where's your book? And I'll Yeah, so the book is on stuff. Amazon. You can okay. also download it off of Kindle. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can look under Terry Lammers or the name of our company is Innovative Business Advisors. Um, you know, the other thing, so we do coaching. The name of our coaching platform is CEO to CEO. So Chief Everything Officer to Chief Executive Officer. Um, I'm also more than willing to do speaking engagements. So if you get anybody that, you know, you need a speaker for your association or something like that, um, give me a shout. Happy to, happy to do it. And if you want to see more on what I've done with the media like you, Jim, uh, go to our website, www.innovativebaboyapple.com and click on the media tab. And there's several articles and, and links to my book and podcast and stuff like that also. Perfect. Terry, thank you so much. You are welcome and a and, uh, big shout out to your, to your listeners.
Thank you so much. Hey, folks, that wraps up this very special and I would say fun and highly informative interview with Terry Lammers. And um, no, excuse me, Terry Lammers. He told me how to do that. Lammers like hammers. And I messed it up at the end. <laughs> Terry Lammers. He's uh, obviously got a lot of experience in this area, so you might want to connect with him. Um, I'd say sooner rather than later because it sounds like it could be uh, much more cash in your pocket. Anyway, until this time next week, another fantastic interview. I'm Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach. You take good care. Now it's time to go implement what you've learned. Great ideas are nice, but results only happen through action and implementation. So stay focused. Kick all distractions to the curb. Sleep a little less if you have to. And create your dream business now so you too can live your dream lifestyle. To learn about building your dream business, join Jim's free Dream Business Facebook community at dreambizgroup.com. That's dreambizgroup.com. See you next week for more Dream Business Radio.